Well, if you do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 8. We've been in this study of the book of Acts since September. It's been a great uh, series for us as a church. Uh, Lots of great stuff to glean and to uh, some insights to gain. Um, We're going to be looking at at Acts 8. Before we uh, get there, while you're sort of getting settled in your Bibles and and all of that, I want to kind of set this up uh, by just saying that, you know, from time to time, we we will hear about uh, celebrity conversions, right? We'll hear about individuals who are prominent in the entertainment industry, who make a profession of faith of some sort, a profession of faith in Christ. We can think about someone like, Kanye West, or Kanye, or just yay. Um, Kanye achieved success as a rapper, as a record producer, and as a fashion designer. Uh, He sold more than 160 million albums. Uh, He's won 24 Grammy Awards. Uh, He launched a successful sneaker company. The, the Yeezys were all the rage in about 2015. He did a deal with Adidas. I mean, just, you know, lots of success in so many areas of life. Um, Kanye was married to Kim Kardashian, who was famous in her own right. Famous for what exactly? We're not sure, but she's famous all the same. Kanye became a household name. Kanye went through some kind of conversion experience around 2018 Uh, I don't get to quote Kim Kardashian in a lot of sermons, but here's what she said at the time. He's had an amazing evolution of being born again and saved by Christ. The next year, Kanye released a gospel album called Jesus is King. There's actually some good songs on that album. His life since that point has been kind of a mess. Uh, He had a brief presidential bid in 2020, He went through a very public and acrimonious divorce. Uh, He's given some bizarre interviews. He's made some questionable decisions. So what are we supposed to make of his conversion? More recently, I was interested to read about the conversion of Kat Von D. Uh, Kat Von D is described as as a Mexican-American tattoo artist, television personality, entrepreneur, and recording artist. By any worldly standards, Kat Von D was a huge success. She had her own TV show, LA Inc. She started a lucrative beauty company. She's written a couple of books that ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. She's released music. She has nearly 10 million followers on Instagram. In her 20s, Kat Von D practiced a lot of new age stuff, as she puts it. She got into tarot cards and crystals and witchcraft And it was in the midst of the lockdown that things began to change in her life. Instead of learning to bake sourdough, Kat Von D reevaluated her life. She said, I was going down the list of what I'm doing with my life and what my perspectives are. And then it got to the part of my spirituality. And that's where I started rethinking lots of things. She began watching sermons online and reading the Bible. In a recent interview with Ali Beth Stuckey, she said this. I came to this really awesome realization that night that I don't want these crutches in my life anymore. And that's what I saw them as. I just want Jesus. In 2023, Kat Von T was baptized at her home church in Indiana. What are we supposed to make of her conversion? Uh, Let me drop one more in here. 
It was just over a year ago that something happened on the campus of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Something that happened was an apparent revival. A chapel service that began on February the 8th of last year didn't end until February 24th. It just went on 24 hours a day. And during those 70 or 17 days, some 70,000 people visited Asbury University's chapel to experience what they referred to as an outpouring, an awakening, or a revival. The tens of thousands who responded to altar calls said they witnessed prophecies, casting out of demons, and healings became a news story. It was covered by CNN and by Fox. So what are we supposed to make of all the apparent conversions that happened there? And I'm beginning with those questions because they're good questions to ask, but also because what we find in Acts chapter 8 is sort of the first ever celebrity conversion. And uh, so let's look at the passage now. We're in Acts chapter 8. We're looking at verses 9 to 25, but I'm going to back up a little bit and start the reading at, at verse 4 just to kind of pick up where we were last week. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Well, much of this passage is taken up with Simon. At least it is bookended with Simon and his story. We're given his background 
and his initial response to the preaching of the gospel in verses 9 to 13, and then his confusion or misunderstanding of the gospel in verses 18 to 25. And in the middle of that, kind of sandwiched in between the stuff about Simon, is the story of the others in the city of Samaria who responded to the gospel, were baptized, and received the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say that understanding the middle section of this story requires a bit of heavy lifting, so I'm warning you in advance. We will come to that. But there are at least three things that we ought to understand from this passage. The first thing we ought to understand is that the gospel frees us from those things that once held us captive. So Philip was part of the group that was scattered from the church in Jerusalem because of persecution. We looked at that last week. He goes to the city of Samaria and he starts preaching the gospel and performing signs. And his ministry immediately revealed that there was a power struggle taking place within the region. Not a political power struggle, but a struggle that was taking place in the hearts and minds of the people who lived there. Verse 9 tells us that there was a man named Simon who practiced magic and amazed the people of Samaria. Now, when it says that, that he practiced magic, we, we shouldn't think that, you know, he was like pulling a rabbit out of a hat or something. It wasn't that kind of magic. Right? What he practiced was some type of you know, black magic or the occult or Simon seemingly had some kind of special power. The end of verse 9 tells us that he referred to himself as someone great. And then verses 10 and 11 go on to say this. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So Simon not only seems to have some sort of magical power, could do things, but he also seemed to have some kind of power over the people. When it says that they paid attention to him or that they were amazed at the magic that he did, it, we, we shouldn't think, well, they, you know, they just, they paid such close attention, like they were trying to figure out what was the secret to the, the magic tricks he was doing. I mean, you know, how does he make that, that scarf just disappear? What it means is that they followed what he said. They paid attention to him. They regarded him as a godlike figure. And Philip comes along and he starts not only preaching the gospel with words, but demonstrating the power of the gospel. And verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It's like that spell that Simon held over them was completely broken as Philip begins preaching the gospel. They were freed from that. They thought Simon was all that. They thought he was the power of God that is called great. They thought that until they encountered the real thing. You know, the the moon looks bright until you see the sun. 
right? And when you see the sun, you say, oh, that, that moon was, it was nothing at all, actually. Notice their response to Philip's preaching in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. The power that was greater than Simon was not Philip. It was Jesus. Philip came preaching the good news, the gospel about the kingdom of God and about the name of God. Of Jesus Christ. There is power in the name of Jesus. And this was not just sort of a first century dynamic that was at work here. There is power in the gospel. The book of Romans tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that word salvation literally means rescue or deliverance. The gospel is the power of God. Now, the way this applies to us is in relation to our bondage to sin. Some of you might live in a cycle of sin. Your sin holds sway over you or holds power over you in much the same way that Simon and his magic held sway or held power over those in Samaria. You feel completely dominated by it. Because every time you try to break free, it asserts its control again. And you might feel completely powerless against it. This is just the way it is. Change is not possible. But again, the moon looks bright until you encounter the sun. That's essentially what the Apostle Paul says when he cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And the good news of the gospel that we all need to hear and need to hear again this morning is that Jesus has freed us not just from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Now, I don't know what it might be that that holds you today. It could be a kind of fear. It could be a kind of crippling anxiety. It could be a destructive pornography habit or some other form of addiction, God's power is always greater than what holds us. And the gospel frees us from those things that once had power over us. The second thing we see here is that the gospel transfers us into the family of God. Now, I'm taking this from the middle section. But this is where the heavy lifting comes in. So I want you to listen again to verses 14 to 18 because something strange happens there. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. We'll stop there. Well, these verses raise an important question. It seems odd, doesn't it? That the Samaritans believed, they were baptized, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. So what are we supposed to make of that? Is that the normative experience for Christians? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit does not belong to Jesus, is not a Christian. That's actually the clear and consistent teaching throughout the New Testament. So then how do we make sense of what we read here? They believed, they were baptized, but they didn't receive the Spirit until Peter and John came and laid hands on them. Well, these verses have actually been a great dividing point in understanding the nature of salvation. The question is, is what Luke is describing here, first faith and baptism, then the gift of the Holy Spirit, is that normal or abnormal? Is initiation into the Christian faith a one-stage process in which we repent, believe, receive the forgiveness of sins, and receive the Holy Spirit? Or is it a two-stage process where we first repent and believe, and then later we receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands? Well, this passage in Acts chapter 8 is the proof text for two large groups who think it's a two-stage process. Those two groups are the Roman Catholics and the Pentecostals. Roman Catholics believe that the first stage of initiation is baptism, and the second stage is confirmation by a bishop who is regarded to be a a successor to the apostles. This is where they get that idea. Here's what one bishop from the 4th century said about this passage. He said exactly the same thing happens with us today. Those who have been baptized by the church are presented to the bishops of the church so that by our prayer and the imposition of our hands, they may receive the Holy Spirit. They would say that this description in Acts chapter 8 is the normative experience for Christians today. And this is still the practice of the Roman Catholic Church today. The Pentecostals also hold to a two-stage initiation. In their theology, the first stage is conversion, right? A person turns to Christ in repentance and faith. The second stage is a baptism of the Holy Spirit or a baptism in the Holy Spirit, and that is usually associated with the laying on of hands from a Pentecostal leader. The Assemblies of God's Statement of Faith says it this way, all believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. Now, if all you had to go on was this passage in Acts chapter 8, you could see how they, each of those groups could land there. That's what happened in Samaria. Therefore, that must be what happens all the time. 
Now, I think there are several good reasons for rejecting that. There's always a danger of taking or isolating a single text and building a doctrine off of it. And this is especially true with narrative passages, which tell us what happened, but not necessarily why it happened. So as a matter just of interpretation, it is good to distinguish between passages that we might label or categorize as descriptive passages and passages that we might label or categorize as prescriptive passages. So descriptive passages tell us what happened. Prescriptive passages tell us or prescribe for us what should happen. This is a descriptive passage. It's describing something that happened. And on top of that, there are several good reasons for seeing the initiation into the Christian faith as a one-stage initiation. I've already mentioned the clear teaching in Romans 8 where Paul says that if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But we could also turn to places like 1 Corinthians 12 where we are told this. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized, that's all believers, into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. That's every believer. We were all baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit on the day we believed. Even if we just limited ourselves to the book of Acts, we could see this is the clear teaching of the apostles. Listen to the conclusion of Peter's sermon from Acts 2. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. When do you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? When you repent and believe. So if all of that is true, then why didn't it happen like that for the Samaritans? Why did Peter and John have to come down from Jerusalem and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. But we ought to remember that the book of Acts is a transitional book. That is to say that it shows us what happens, or what happened in the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And God confirmed that transition with these kinds of visual or visible displays, manifestations of His power. We've been seeing those throughout the book of Acts. You could think of what happened on the day of Pentecost as an example of that. In that story, the the Spirit's presence felt like the rushing of a mighty wind. There were tongues of fire that appeared. Lots of scholars refer to what happened here in Acts chapter 8 as the Samaritan Pentecost. And, And you can see the parallels. There must have been some kind of visible sign that the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Samaritans Because the apostles recognize immediately that they've received the Spirit. Simon sees it. Okay, but why then would the experience of these Samaritans be different from everyone else going forward? Well, I mentioned last week that there was a lot of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. That tension actually went all the way back to the 9th century BC when the northern kingdom of Israel rebelled against King David and set up their own capital in the city of 
Samaria. By the time you get to the New Testament, you have almost 1,000 years of hostility or tension between these two groups. The Samaritans built their own temple. Their worship practices were syncretistic in that they adopted the worship practices of the nations surrounding Israel. And Acts chapter 8 tells us what happened the first time the gospel is preached and received in Samaria. And interestingly, Peter and John come down from Jerusalem to see what's happened, to pray for those. And it's interesting that John was there. Because you might remember his question to Jesus about the Samaritans. In Luke 9, it says, And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want, to tell, you, do you want us to tell fire to come down and consume them? You know, he said that about the Samaritans. That was John's opinion of the Samaritans at the time. And that would have been the prevailing attitude of people in Jerusalem. But now the Samaritans have placed their faith in Christ. Well, you can see the potential problem here, right? One writer put it this way, the gospel had been welcomed by the Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the Jews, the Jewish Christians? There was a real possibility that that wouldn't have been the case. And you could have had two factions, Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians. The church would have been doomed from the outset. But God gave this visible sign as a testimony to the apostles who came down from Jerusalem that the Samaritans received the same spirit they did. So this two-stage process with the first Samaritan believers served a specific divine purpose. John Stott summed it up this way. He said, Is it not reasonable to suggest, in view of this historical background, that in order to avoid just such a disaster, that disaster of factions, God deliberately withheld the Spirit from these Samaritan converts? I think that's a good explanation of that. What happened here in Acts chapter 8 is actually the fulfillment of something God promised through the prophet Ezekiel. Now, I don't have time to take you there and read the the whole chapter for you, but Ezekiel 37 is a fascinating chapter. If you want to do something different in your Bible reading this week, read Ezekiel 37. You'll see that in the first half of that chapter, it talks about God's spirit blowing on these dead bones. But in the second half of the chapter, God tells Ezekiel to take two sticks, and he tells him to write the name of, of the southern kingdom of Israel on one of those sticks and to write the name of the northern kingdom of Israel on the other one of those sticks. And then he tells them to join those two sticks together. And he tells them that there is going to come a day when those two sticks will be brought together. The promise is that the two kingdoms are going to be united under a single king a Davidic king. And that God himself would dwell among them. Now, it had been a thousand years since those two kingdoms were united. And what happened here at this Samaritan Pentecost is the fulfillment of that promise. 
that the kingdoms are brought together, that God dwells among them in the person of the Holy Spirit. This was monumental. As the Apostle Paul would later say, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you might be saying, well, look, that's interesting history and and all of that, but what does any of that have to do with me or how does that matter? Well, it matters in terms of how you understand your salvation. Some theologies, as I've already said, promote a kind of two-tiered system of Christians, right? Those who have had this particular experience over here and those who haven't had it. Listen, if you have repented, if you have believed the gospel and put your faith in Jesus, you have received the Holy Spirit. You have received the spirit of adoption that places you in the family of God. You do not need to go around feeling like a second-class Christian. The moment we repent and put our faith in Christ We are transferred to the family of God. Third thing we discover in this passage is that we shouldn't confuse the gospel with easy believism. So what are we supposed to make of Simon the magician or Simon the sorcerer? Was he a genuine believer or was he a false convert? Verse 13 says this, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Well, that verse indicates some kind of conversion experience, but the end of that verse should at least give us a little bit of pause, right? And seeing great signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. Verses 18 and 19 then go on to say this. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So, did Simon have genuine faith in Jesus? Or did he just want the power Philip and the apostles seemed to have? A power that was greater than his. Now, I know, who am I to judge? But we do get some clues in what happens next. Peter says this in verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Uh, One paraphrase puts it in stronger terms when it says, to hell with you and your money. Now, that might offend some of you. I understand that. But it is actually stated in the language of a curse. It's stated in language that is similar to the curses found in the book of Deuteronomy. In verse 21, Peter says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter says plainly to Simon, Look, you have no part in this, no lot in this. And the language he's using 
is the language of the Old Testament when it speaks about land inheritance. You either had a share or you had no share. Now, we might not be able to know what is in a person's heart, but Peter, by the Holy Spirit, could see what was in Simon's heart, and his heart was not right before God. Now, I think as we hear this, I mean, especially as, you know, polite Canadians, Peter's words sound harsh to us. But I think there's something for us to learn from them, from what he says, and from his directness. Uh, I've been reading uh, Abigail Favalli's book, The Genesis of Gender. Uh, Abigail is a professor at Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana. She taught gender studies there for more than a decade. She felt like her central task as a gender studies professor was to disrupt and unsettle students' tidy and simplistic views about gender. But in the midst of doing that and doing it very well, her conscience began to bother her, and she began to wonder if any of it was true. So she sought out the advice of an older, respected colleague, and here's how she describes that experience and that exchange. She said, within five minutes, I was in full-blown confession mode, disclosing the indictments of my conscience not to a priest, but to a gray-bearded Quaker with a Gandalf vibe. I feel like I've given, been giving my students poison to drink. For so many years, I've been careless, careless with their minds, and most disturbingly, careless with their souls. The professor listened to me quietly, as was his way. He tends to speak few words, but those words are usually wise and rarely what you want to hear. He could have coddled me, told me I'm, I'd done what I thought was right at the time and that I was being too hard on myself, Instead, he said in an Appalachian drawl, you know that verse in Matthew? The one that says if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the sea? I've always thought it would be a good idea for us professors to have that tattooed on our arms. And I just want to say, sometimes people don't benefit from being coddled. Often the most loving thing we can do is to simply tell the truth. Peter says to, to Simon here, repent. And I think Simon's response to that is interesting. Here's what it says in verse 24. And Simon answered, pray for me and to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, does that sound like someone who has repented of sins to you? Or does that sound like someone who doesn't want to experience the consequences of their sin? There's a massive difference between those two things. There's a massive difference between saying, Lord, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and saying, I don't want anything bad to happen to me. Now, I began asking questions or by asking questions about the alleged conversions of Kanye West and Kat Von D and, and the ones that happened at Asbury University. I, I'm not the one to judge an individual's heart before God. I certainly would pray for those individuals. But, but I do think that this account of Simon should be instructive for us. 
The way you can actually tell what has happened in a person's life is by the fruit that is produced. I mentioned the Asbury Revival, and I, I found an interesting article related to that this week. As I said, the story received lots of media attention. At the one-year anniversary of that event, one reporter contacted all of the churches near Asbury University asking if they had experienced significant additions to their church membership or if, or if there had been any major changes in the lives of their members. Every representative he spoke to said no on both counts. Nearly all of the people he spoke to said that individuals from their churches had visited Asbury Chapel during the revival, but said they couldn't highlight any lasting outcomes. Now, I'm not saying that to discourage you. I'm not saying that to cast aspersions on everything. I just think it's important that we don't confuse the gospel with easy believism. If there is no fruit, it's because there's no root. Many of you are familiar with the parable that Jesus told about a sower who went out and sowed seed, and his seed fell on four different types of soil. Some fell on the path. It was eaten by the birds. Some fell on rocky soil, and because of the shallowness of the soil, there was no depth for it to gain any footing. Some fell among thorns and started to grow, but it was choked out by the weeds and the thorns. And some of the seed landed in good soil and produced a good crop. Listen to the interpretation Jesus gave of that parable. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. If there is no fruit, it's because there is no root. And those who have genuinely come to faith in Jesus will produce fruit. It will be demonstrated in their lives. This doesn't mean that they won't sin. It doesn't mean that they will never fall. What it means is that when they do sin, when they do fall, they repent before the Lord. They show it by the fruit of their repentance. And may that be true of all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us your word testifies about itself that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide even spirit and soul. And Lord, we, we know that's true in our lives, that sometimes we read your word and it penetrates deep into our hearts. It speaks to us in a way that nothing else can. And we thank you for your spirit that enlivens that within us. God, I pray for our response to your word, that it is one that, that uh, desires to obey it, to hear it, to put it into practice. And we pray that this truth of yours would not fall on deaf ears. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.